0: Isn't Jesus so good? Praise in the name of Jesus. Church, it's so good to be together again today. Uh, we're going to go to God's word this morning, and before we do, we're going to go to him first in prayer. Um, even before we do that, I just want to briefly mention uh, we are at the end of the year and uh, heading into budget season as a church. I hope you're praying for our church in that. Uh, we have an upcoming members meeting on December 11th, where we hope to vote on a uh, a new budget for next year. You'll hear members. You'll hear more about this as we get closer to that date. Uh, one of the things also that we typically do at, at annual meetings, at the the final members meeting of the year, is we look forward to the next year. Uh, this year in the life of our church, we have two of our elders who have faithfully served over the last three years, Bruce Case and Bob Lutz, who are uh, finishing a three-year term. Uh, As your elders have met and prayed over uh, these brothers, we want to recommend to you, the congregation, that we would renominate both of these brothers to serve another three-year term. Uh, We eagerly would recommend them just seeing integrity and faithfulness in their eldership. I just want to put this in front of you as our congregation well in advance uh, to let you know how your elders have been praying and evaluating. And as you as the congregation take your role seriously, if you have any questions or hesitations about either of these brothers, I just want to invite you to talk to the other elders in advance. We would be served by hearing from you some of what you're seeing and thinking about these brothers. So that would be specifically talking to myself or Pastor Keith or Julian or Matt Piercefield and telling us what you're seeing as you are also praying over the service that uh, Bruce and Bob have been offering our congregation. So I want to put that in front of you and be praying for that over the next couple of weeks. Well speaking of prayer we are now going to turn our eyes to Christ and ask for his help in our congregation and in our body. So would you turn with me in prayer to God? Father God, we come before you now as a congregation, bringing our needs together before your throne. We know that you are trustworthy, O God. We trust you to, to hear our prayers even now, and to work in our church. Father, we pray today that you would continue to heal Mark Thomas. he has been released from the hospital this week, Father. We pray that you would not only strengthen his physical body, but that you would strengthen his walk with you during this difficult season of health in his life. Father, we pray for our congregation today, for our members who are going to be visiting with family over Thanksgiving this week. Father, would you be with our congregation and would you give them opportunities to reflect Jesus Christ and to speak of Jesus Christ with love and kindness, with boldness and with winsomeness to their families. You give wisdom as we sit around Thanksgiving meals this week, we pray. Father, we pray for Joe and Jane Martinez, missionaries who our church regularly supports in Peru. Father, we pray that you'd encourage them in their faithfulness, and we thank you for Joe's work to help build the church there. And even as is asked this week for prayer, we pray that you would raise up other elders for their church there in Peru. But God, work not just in Peru, but work here in our country. Work here in Palm Beach County, God. Father, we ask that you would bring more healthy churches to our area, Father, that you would raise up more faithful men to faithfully preach your word and congregations to gather around your word. Father, we pray for our church as well. May we be found faithful. God, as we, as we look to budget season, we pray for wisdom and discernment, to be faithful stewards of the funds that people have given in worship to you. Father, as we consider affirming our elders again, Father, give us wisdom. Give us unity as a church. May may we be a body that is healthy and growing with a love for one another and for the lost and for you. And do that even now, we pray, as we turn to your word. Would you mature us, I pray. Mature us through your word as we turn to the book of Luke. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Well, doubt is common, is it not? Doubt is a, a sense or feeling of uncertainty. It's a lack of conviction. In the Christian's life, it's the questioning of the reality of what we believe. As Philip Rankin uh, describes it, It's asking in the solitary moments the nagging questions which whine in our ears. Is the Bible really true? Does God actually hear our prayers? Can our sins truly be forgiven? Will I definitely go to heaven when I die? At times, doubt can be healthy and a needed lack of certainty for some of these questions. Some of you might need to be asking some of these questions. Timothy Keller calls this type of doubt an, an antibody in your body that is working in your system to actually strengthen the health of your faith. But at other times, doubt can simply be sinful unbelief, not taking God at his word. Sometimes it's overwhelming. Sometimes it's just absolutely crippling. Uh, oftentimes, it's subtle. It's subtle. And quiet, it's a nagging thought which we try to act like isn't there. It's like like an unwelcome friend that's following us down the street. And we don't want to turn and face, but we kind of speed up, hoping to not think about the doubts that are in the back of our minds. Uh, John Bunyan describes doubt as a castle which a Christian is thrown into and locked up in the bottom dungeon only to find that he actually had the key with him all along in his pocket. I'm guessing in a room this size, there's probably a few of you, there are probably a few of you who are struggling with significant doubt, who may be questioning your faith altogether, maybe even considering walking away from the faith. Or maybe there's those who aren't yet committed completely to Christ, and your doubts are holding you back. I'm guessing there are many of us in this room that occasionally face doubt. Maybe it's not crippling, but time to time. There are times that you stop and wonder, you struggle to believe. But I'm sure that in this room, almost all of us will at one time eventually face moments where we question again what we believe. Maybe it'll be on our final deathbed, Or maybe it will be at the the graveside of a a loved one. We'll be asking ourselves, where do we find certainty? Well, in today's text, as we begin in the book of Luke, we meet a man named Theophilus, who was needing certainty in his life. He was needing certainty that comes from carefully evaluating the life of and teaching and work of Jesus Christ. This is the situation to the introduction to the book of Luke. If you haven't opened your Bibles already, open your Bibles now and turn to Luke chapter one. Luke is the author of this book. He's a physician, a masterful historian. He was a traveling companion of Paul and probably a a well-educated Greek man. He's detail-oriented and careful in his writing and is recording here the narrative of Jesus Christ for this man, Theophilus, and he's recording it with a purpose. So today we begin a study in the book of Luke. Uh, this, this book is a gospel, so it's, it's a narrative history of the life and work of Jesus Christ, and this book is the longest of the gospels, and is actually uh, part one of a two-part series where Luke can pu- Uh, writes first the book of luke and then the book of the acts of the apostles as we look forward towards advent and the christmas season this will just be a fitting setup to think on the birth and arrival of our king jesus christ and then in 2023 we'll primarily or at least i'll primarily be in the book of luke with some breaks perhaps for other sermon series i make no promises for how long it will take me to get through the book But I was encouraged by the words of a friend this week that the point is not in how quickly we get through the book of Luke, but rather how truly the book of Luke gets through to us. So my prayer for us in this study and for today is that we will see Jesus Christ and that our church body will be transformed as we see him clearly. So follow along with me now as I read just the first four verses of this gospel, Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. We read this: inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. Just as those who were who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also. Having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Here we find an introduction, an overview, purpose statement for this narrative. And here's what we're going to see today. God has given us a credible history for our certainty in our accomplished salvation. That is a certainty in our accomplished salvation. That's what I intend to persuade you of today from this passage. If you're taking notes, this sentence will just be my outline. I'm going to unpack it directly from the text. God has given us a credible history for our certainty in our accomplished salvation. So first, think with me about that first point. He's given us a credible history. Luke begins this narrative account making sure to show us the credible nature of his account. He's going to tell us about Jesus Christ, but this is no myth. This is not a legend. Modern liberal scholars would disagree. They would argue that this is merely oral traditions that have... Uh, been accumulated over time of a good teacher. But no, what we see here is careful reporting of actual historic events which took place in time and space. I want you to see this. I want to just spend a a few minutes here drilling this down into your heart, all right? So this first point, a credible history, I'm just gonna quickly walk through five brief sub points. So credible history, sub point number one, It's because it happened among us. Do you see that in the text? Luke claims that this narrative happened, verse 1, among us. There's good evidence that this book of Luke was written in the 60s AD. So think about that. That would have been less than 30 years after the death of Jesus Christ. Luke is acknowledging that these events weren't from some far off fable or ancient legend. No, this happened among the original readers, the Christians of the first century. But, subpoint number two, this is a credible history because it was also recognized by many. This is the point of verse one. Look at it there. It says, Many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. So, why does Luke here acknowledge that there are other accounts of Jesus' life and death? Well, I I think the reason is that what we find in these pages is true history. We should not be surprised that it brought much attention to those in the first century. Yes, only four of the Gospels are inspired accounts in Scripture, But if Jesus actually lived and actually rose from the dead and actually did all the things that this book says he did, we shouldn't be surprised that oral accounts were being shared from person to person and that letters were being written and that histories were being composed to reflect on this man and all that was happening. Luke says many have tried to capture this. By the way, uh, let me just say that regardless of where you are today with Christianity You have to deal with the existence of the man Jesus of Nazareth That's a little bit what's going on here, right? For Even for those that are here that are, are not completely committed to Christianity in all of your life How do you explain his existence? This was recognized by many This was unignorable story that took place Well, sub-point number three. This is credible history delivered by eyewitnesses. This is just glorious. Notice in verse two that those who were from the beginning were the source of this. Eyewitnesses who testified to what they actually saw. What a bold claim. Anyone could just make up a history and say it's true. But... It takes some boldness to say, well, last night Pastor Keith and I were out bowling with Tony and Chris and Bob, and then we went out for a milkshake together. You could quickly verify. You could talk to any of these people and say, is this true? This is what Paul is doing. He's giving the precision that comes by going back and checking and talking to these eyewitnesses. And it's giving the accountability in this historical document to anyone who would want to check and see, did this happen? So imagine what it must have been like for Luke to go talk to these eyewitnesses. Can you imagine Luke sitting and, and just hearing these accounts? Peter, what was it like on the mountain when Jesus' appearance changed? Oh, it was dazzling white? What do you mean? Martha, how did you feel when when Mary wasn't serving with you? Were you you frustrated when she just sat there listening to Jesus? Zacchaeus, how much of your riches did you actually give away? That's about half of your riches, Zacchaeus. Wow, was that hard, or or were you joyful to do it? There Luke is, talking to eyewitnesses, hearing the accounts that actually happened. Now we're not told who the eyewitnesses were, but here's the point: this book is no imaginative story. it's real life reporting, which leads me to the fourth subpoint. This credible history marks actual events. It bears the the literal the literary markings of a true account. It's by the way, not clear in English, but the original language of these first four verses is written in a very formal Greek. It's what you would do for a classical introduction to a history, and that's what Luke does. He switches to a a different tone and he writes here his introduction to the history that's about to follow. He's setting apart to say that this is a true account of what actually happened. And these literary marks just continue throughout the book. the the well-known scholar and literary critic C.S. Lewis, writes this about the Gospels. He says, I have been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, and myths all my life. I know what they are like, and I know none of them are like this. Of this Gospel text, there are only two possible views. Either this is reported, that is, reporting of actual news, or else some unknown ancient wrote without any known predecessors or any known successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic, realistic narrative. This must be reporting of actual events. And we see this all over the book, by the way. We're gonna see this in the the weeks to come. Luke 8. Where, Jesus talk, where Luke talks about the women that were following Jesus. Luke actually records their names. He talks about these different women that were following behind him, and then he talks about Joanna, who is the wife of Chusa, who served in Herod's household. Like, details that would only be thrown in if this was actually true. Anyone can go back and find this wife of Chusa and, and see, did she really follow this man? Or he would only throw in, think about Luke 24 when Jesus is on the road to Emmaus, and he tells us that he was walking and talking, and one of the the disciples that he was talking to was Cleopas, and then he doesn't name the other disciple. It's almost like a real history. Well, I I know this was one of the guys, because that's who I talked to, and he was with someone else, and it's this reporting of an event as if it was actually reported from true happenings, Subpoint number five, Luke wrote this carefully. It was carefully written. Verse three says, it seemed good to me, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. So Luke follows this closely, and he writes this orderly account for us. And so when we get to Uh, chapter 2, and the birth of Christ. You all know this passage from Christmas. How does it start? He says, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the world should be registered. Luke ties this account to a particular ruler in a particular decree that was made. Then he continues. He says, this was the first registration of Quirinius when he was governor of Syria. He even locates it further, and he says... This is when it happened. This is careful, precise writing to show us that this is a credible history. Friends, I'm belaboring these points not because I want to turn this into a classroom. I just want to drill this down in your hearts that what we are embarking on is true, verifiable history. It actually happened. It's true. Just just think about that. This actually happened. There was actually a virgin who became pregnant supernaturally and gave birth to our Savior. There was actually a storm that just stopped when Jesus spoke. There was actually a moment when the sun went dark and the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. There was an earthquake as this man died Jesus Christ actually rose from the dead it's true here I believe in this passage God is teaching us who are weak in faith that his word is true in the reality of our world it is verifiable By the way, some of you at this point might be thinking that isn't the Bible inspired by God and not just men? In verse 3 here, it seems that Luke is talking like this is his idea, his writings. We know that God, in his kindness, chose to inspire a man to write this and to guide him as he did. Theologians call this verbal plenary inspiration. God is the Word of God is perfectly inspired by the Holy Spirit through the means of human men. Similar to Christ being fully divine and yet taking on the form of man, the Word of God is fully written by God and yet through the means of human men. Actually, uh, turn with me to 2 Peter 1.6 if you have your Bibles. We might have this on the screen. 2 Peter one 1.6 Bob Jensen read this for us just a few minutes earlier in our service. Sorry, 2 Peter 1:16. This is what Peter, how Peter describes this, this work of God to give us this account. Okay? He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. These are not myths. These are eyewitnesses in true history. Verse 17. For when we received honor and glory from the Father, and the voice, when he received honor and glory from the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice. This actually happened. There was was an actual voice, and we heard it. Born from heaven. For we were with him on that holy mountain. They saw this themselves. And so Peter said, so let me explain to you what's happening when we're recording this. Verse 19, we have a prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day of the dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. What is this, this source that is more confirmed than being able to talk to someone face to face? Verse 20, knowing that this, that first of all, no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Friends, we have a better testimony than being there ourselves because our testimony is guided by the Holy Spirit We have the account of the eyewitnesses inspired by the Holy Spirit to write down. Too often in our culture, faith really means blind trust in ideas that could be wrong or ideas that we hope for irrespective of facts. But this isn't the biblical understanding of faith. I think Pastor John Fulmer rightly calls faith a a reasonable trust. A solid trust based on demonstrated reliable character. This is what our faith is. is that God has demonstrated himself in his word. And he has called us to trust his word and he has made it trustworthy. That's what we're seeing here in Luke 1. Which leads us to our second point. So, remember my sentence. God has given us a credible history and it's something he's up to something look back at luke chapter one notice in verse four it begins with this word that bible scholars whenever you see the word that just pause and make sure you capture what's going on it's like the word so that or for you want to see what is the purpose behind this because what luke is doing here is he's laying up all these reasons it's credible Is piling them on uh, like weight on on a lever, like a a crowbar. And the fulcrum point of that crowbar, where it lands in verse 4, all of what's happening in the book of Luke, this credible history, verse 4, is that what? That you may have certainty for the things that you have been taught. Certainty is the firm conviction that something is the case. And all of this reliable, inspired account is so that you can have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught, so that you don't have to doubt. Now, Theophilus here in this verse means lover of God. This is a man that has clearly been taught about Christ. Evidently, he was a man of significance It says, most excellent Theophilus. But he's been discipled. Apparently, he's heard about Christ. And Luke wants him to carefully look to Christ so that he may have certainty. Church, we find ourselves in the place of Theophilus, don't we? We are those who have been taught about Christ. Christ. We've been discipled, we've learned. And we need the ministry of the inspired word of God to give us certainty. So let me just reflect, just pause on these words that you may have certainty. Think about it with me. First, what kind of people would need this sentence? What kind of people must we be that God would need to write this to us. Well, we must be a dependent people. We must be a people that that don't have enough in ourselves for a certain understanding of who Christ is and what he's done. We need God's word to guide us. We need the words living power to kill doubt in our hearts and to direct us. We're needy people. Friend, I wonder, are are you a needy person for God's word today? Do you see yourself as needing God's word for your certainty? Or when your questions arise, do you instead go off and run to some mystical or coincidental affirmations? No, God has given us a source of certainty. Are you needy for it? How foolish are many of us Christians to claim that we believe everything I've been saying this morning and yet not open this book. How foolish would you be tomorrow morning and the morning after to not run to this book if God has inspired it and given it to us as his revelation? Are you needy? Friends, we are also a needy church. We need certainty concerning the things that we've been taught. This is why our church is centered around the word of God. This is why we give so much time in our service to come and listen to the word of God. It's not about me, it's not about Bruce last week or whoever preaches next week. It's about this book being God's revelation to us. We should disproportionately prioritize this hour in our week. We should come be with other Christians who sing the word of God. And we should come be with other Christians who hear the word of God read and who pray the word of God and who listen to the word of God preached and then go out and discuss the word of God and apply it to our lives. This is what we need. We are a needy church. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, let me just suggest one of the best things you can do It's just come and listen to what this book has to say. Just sit under the word of God and see what it says. Uh, One final observation about this phrase, that you may have certainty. What does this sentence say about God? What kind of God would write this to his people? Friends, this must be a good God. It must be a, a kind God who chooses to reveal himself to us. This must be a God who chooses to give us his word based on real historical fact that we can know him. He cannot be a far-off, distant, removed deity. He cannot be uncommunicative or just waiting for us to guess our way to him. No, he's given us clarity. He wants us to know him Praise God. Praise God. So here's the logic. Eyewitnesses witness to Christ. Luke compiled it so that we may have certainty in seeing it. Certainty comes not from avoiding our doubts or ignoring your doubts, but by carefully looking at them and considering them. Or more precisely, certainty comes by looking to Christ in His Word. Romans ten seventeen. 17, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. We should move on. Our third and final point, we'll end on this. God has given us credible history for our certainty of our accomplished salvation. See, I believe that this text is teaching us a general certainty, for sure. But Luke has several specific themes in his gospel that he wants us to have certainty in. Specifically here, notice with me the work of our accomplished salvation. Let's slow down and look back at this one word in the introduction. Back in verse 1, Luke mentions the things... that many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. So something has happened. Something has been accomplished. And this word translated as accomplished here in the ESV refers to something that has been fulfilled. It's a successful completion of a plan, is what this word means. We should be be asking, what has been fulfilled? What's the plan that has been accomplished, that has been completed, that you're writing about? Then we look more closely and we realize that Luke here, this is just glorious, Luke is beginning with a word that he will use several times throughout his narrative to prove a point. He's using it intentionally, his foreshadowing, an idea, And he's not just happening to mention this word of fulfillment, of accomplishment. He's looking to the fulfillment of the plan of salvation. Let me just very briefly show you this. Luke 4.21. So here it's at the introduction of the book. Luke 4.21 is where we jump forward to the beginning of Jesus' whole ministry, right? And he gets up in the synagogue, and he reads from Isaiah, and he declares the year of the Lord's favor. And then what does he say after he reads that? He says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. But then also, when Jesus approaches the the pinnacle of his ministry, his crucifixion, he reflects on his coming death in Luke 22. And there he quotes again from Isaiah, this time from Isaiah 53, the, the prophecy of the suffering servant. And Jesus says to his disciples, For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. He is the suffering servant that has come to accomplish this plan of salvation. Friends, if you're here today and you have not looked to Christ for your salvation, you have not looked to Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you need this accomplished plan. You need to look to Christ. But then this word fulfillment finds its way several other times. I'm going to just skip to the last one. The very end of the book, like bookends to this book, Luke lands the plane in Luke chapter 24. And here on the road to Emmaus, Jesus walks with his two disciples who don't yet understand that it's him. And as they're walking along here, Jesus explains himself in verse 27. Verse 27. And it says that he, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. And then later appears to them in a room, in verse 44, and this is what he says. He says, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Must be accomplished in me. There is a plan in history, a plan throughout Scripture that is finding its culmination in Jesus Christ. He is the fulfillment of all of Scripture. That's what we're seeing here. This gospel that we're embarking on, that we're coming to study, is important because it is showing us the Christ whom all the Scriptures have been working towards and it's glorious. You know, when I was in grad school uh, and working as a research fellow, I would often commute across the city we lived in, and I would sit in traffic on a bus. And while sitting there on that bus, I grew a love for classical music, even though I'm very much an amateur. Uh, A personal favorite of mine was the Russian composer of the Romantic period, Tchaikovsky. And you're probably familiar with his 1812 Overture. If you heard it, you know it's often played at Independence Day celebrations. Uh, throughout the Overture, there's what mu- music- musicians might call a motif or a melodic line, which is just woven throughout the piece of the Overture. Dun 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 dun, dun, dun. It was something like that, right? You're with me? All right. So it's first introduced by one section of the orchestra, and it becomes less prominent again. And then it comes back in again, a little bit stronger, and then again, off in the distance over here by the horns. Until that small motif, which was foreshadowed in the beginning, crescendos with the whole orchestra, celebrating that melodic line. Dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. You're welcome. All right, in the 1812 Overture, it does this magnificently well. The crescendo reaches the pinnacle with the bells starting to chime and the whole orchestra celebrating and the, the brass fanfare finale comes in and even live cannons start firing on cue. And what was once a distant, quiet, melodic line is now beautifully positioned in the climax of the overture. It just builds, and it's beautiful. Friends, this is something of what we have in the book of Luke. Luke is getting to the climax. He's not in isolation. He's introducing the glorious life and work and death of our Savior. And he's signaling back to a larger plan of salvation, a melodic line that has been unfolding throughout history, throughout all of the scriptures, showing that Christ is the fulfillment. The plan of salvation is finding its culmination in Jesus Christ. Wasn't your heart filled last week when we heard this from Ruth? Didn't we get there? We just landed in the last chapter of Ruth and we realized this is something about, this is about something far bigger. This is about the Messiah coming through the royal line of David that God is at work in in the book of Ruth. Friends, that's the whole story of Scripture. It's all culminating in that climax, that crescendo of Jesus Christ the fulfillment of all salvation history. And it says, and Luke says, look to this person. Look to him and you'll have certainty. In his life and death, in his person and work, all the scriptures are finding their fulfillment. Brothers and sisters, certainty in Christ's life and death, looking to Christ is where your doubts go to die. Look to Christ. Look to his work, which he has been orchestrating throughout all history, which actually happened, and which will be celebrated for eternity future as we sing the praises of the Lamb. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for Jesus Christ. We praise you for his work coming and, and taking on the flesh the human flesh of a man, and living in time and space among us. Father, I pray for our church that that we would look to Christ, that we would understand him more clearly, that we would savor him and worship him more dearly because of the book of Luke. God, I pray that you would free men and women from doubt as they look to what actually happened and was what is inspired in your word, and believe. Father, we praise you for the fulfillment of all things in Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Amen, church.